0: So if someone were to ask you what should characterize the heart posture of the Christian or of God's people, more, more uh, properly, the span of redemptive history, God's people on earth, what should be the heart posture? Or if you think of a graph where the x-axis x-axis is longing or sorrow or uh, this waiting for resolution, and that's on the x-axis. And the y-axis is joy, rejoicing, celebration, singing victory. What should be a heart posture of God's people? Is it, is it more of waiting and longing for resolution? Or is it more victory, joy? That's, that question is at the very heart of this passage today. Uh, and we'll see that. The question we have to ask ourselves, though, even trying to think to answer that, is what is the determining factor? Like, how do we determine whether or not it should be a a day of joy or a day of sorrow? I mean, the world will answer that by saying, well, it depends on a lot of the circumstances around us. Whose political party is in power? How is my career going? How is my family going? Are people healthy? Is there a lot of things sad around me? Like that, that's going to determine whether or not we should have a posture of, that, of great waiting and resolution, for resolution or sorrow or of rejoicing and celebration. I think the passage, what we're going to see here, is that God's people should demonstrate celebration or longing according to God's restorative presence. It's God's restorative presence, the proximity of it. Where is that? that will determine whether or not we are in a time of celebration, singing the victory, or of waiting and longing for resolution. So that's what we'll see in the passage. This is a very interesting passage, actually, because we'll see that the, the, uh, the point is the same, but the meaning for the characters in the story may be a little bit different for them than the meaning uh, for us today. But if you were just to have someone follow you around for the past week, uh, what sort of uh, indication would they get from your life that you would say, this is how God's people should uh, act in the world. This is their, our heart posture. Would people look at you, your thought life, your, how, how you're approaching life, and think, man, God's people are full of joy and the victory? Or would they look at you and say, man, the God's people are full of sorrow and longing and, and waiting? Well, what would characterize you? We'll come back to that, uh, but let's dive into the story. First, we're going to see the, the meaning of the passage for the characters in the story, and then we'll talk about the meaning for the audience after that. So uh, our scene starts off there, verse 18. Uh, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came to, to Jesus, and they asked him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not Fast And so that sets the scene for us. If you remember from uh, the last two weeks, we're in a, a, a section of the book where there's four questions being asked of Jesus in these four consecutive scenes. Uh, it was, why, why does this man speak like that? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's what Nick preached two weeks ago. Then last week we saw, why, why does this man eat with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, that was last week. This week, why, why do... Those disciples of John and the Pharisees, well, they fast. Well, why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? And then next week, uh, we'll see that uh, they're asking why, why Jesus' disciples are doing what's not lawful on the Sabbath. And then the next scene, Jesus is going to turn it around and, and, and start to question them. And this pattern will happen later in the book. But we're in this scene. They're, they're trying to figure out Jesus remember he is the unexpected king after all they were assuming messiah would come in and really shake things up politically that god's kingdom would come they would rule and destroy all of the earthly enemies and and now uh, everything would be good and everything's looking different than they anticipated so they're trying to figure jesus out why why do you do this why don't you do that last week it's why why do you eat with all these people if, if you truly are uh, hungering for God and love God, well, are you're supposed to be separate from sinners. Why are you eating with them? And now they're upset because he's not eating, or because he's eating with a period, I mean. And now he's supposed to be not eating. And so these are now like uh, food rules that they're, they're dealing with, they're trying to figure out. But they want to know why he's not fasting. So let's talk about fasting a little bit. Fasting, as you, I'm sure, know, is usually going without food or going without food or water. You can fast from other things, right? Fasting is, is withholding yourself uh, from something or something from yourself. And typically, it's going to be something that is delightful, something that it's going to be painful to be without. So you're going to afflict your body and soul in some manner. And cultures and religious beliefs have, have fasted throughout the centuries all over the world throughout history. So it's not unique to God's people. Uh, But fasting has different intentions uh, according to the the people groups. So some people will fast because uh, they're trying to stop sinning. Uh, That would be like asceticism. It's sort of like this trying to master the body, right? Treat your body hard. So now you have mastery over your body so you can stop sinning and and you can try that. It won't, it's not going to work. If you can try it, uh, you'll be miserable and then more miserable. Uh, other, other people do it because uh, they for health reasons. That's uh, very popular in our day. I would say, what do you call that, in, intermittent fasting? I mean, lots, lots of people will do that. Uh, for, just for health reasons, uh, you can fast. Uh, others will fast to try to earn God's favor. It's like, look at what we're doing now. Now God is in our debt. Uh, God owes us something, and you can try that one too. That won't work either. Uh, or there will be political fasts, right? You're, you're, you're afflicting your body as a way of trying to persuade the, the, the government or some sort of a, a ruler, some, someone in authority to change a policy. But none, none of those are the biblical intentions and purposes of fasting. Fasting actually is only commanded one time in the Old Testament. Uh, that's in Leviticus 16. Uh, that would be for the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was uh, the day when when it was just very front and center, the sinfulness of man and the holiness of God, and the need for reconciliation, the need for atonement. Some something, some way, the sin for God's people, the punishment that God's people deserved, had to be paid. And so the Day of Atonement would be this great day where they would gather and the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the the one place where you couldn't go except one person one time a year could go in and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat where God's unique dwelling place was and they would sacrifice the goat and send one goat off into the wilderness, all being a picture of the need for sin uh, to be uh, punished and the, the punishment for sin to be poured out and God's people to be released from sin so they could be reconciled to God again. Which clearly then, there's a reason to fast because it's meant to, meant to humble your heart and plead with God. God, we need forgiveness. We have sinned against you. Would you please intervene and act and forgive us for our sin? But then the, as, you, as the Old Testament continues, there's other voluntary fasts. There's actually quite a lot of them. So you could just run through a a lot of the main uh, major characters that show up in the Old Testament will have some sort of a fasting in them. So you think of Daniel, uh, where Daniel is fasting over the hardships of God's people. You have Nehemiah fasting as he learns about what's going on in Jerusalem and and there's still not a wall set up. And he mourns and he fasts, asking God to intervene and give him favor before the king. You have Esther, right, as, as uh, the king uh, and... Uh, was it Haman is setting up to plot against the Jews, so the Jews are annihilated, a genocide. And so Esther is praying and fasting and ask all Israel to pray and fast so that she goes into the king. God, we need you to act here and turn uh, what's, what the king has ordered. And we could go on and on through the list. There's a, there's a lot of voluntary fasting through the Old Testament. The one thing that they seem to all have in common is this idea that there's a longing. There's this yearning ache for God to do something, whether that be forgive us of our sin, whether it be to intervene in this situation, whatever it is, God, we need you. And it's this longing for God's restorative presence. Uh, And if you ever want to do some work on fasting, the best resource I've ever found is uh, John Piper's book, A Hunger for God. You can get it free online, the, the, the PDF of it. The first two chapters are really worth the book. I think they're super helpful. I've read them multiple times for the years. I think he does the best work on it that's just very clear, uh, A Hunger for God. Uh, he, he has this chapter called A Homesickness for God, which I, I think is a nice I- imagery. It's, it's this idea of longing for God to intervene. And really, uh, if, if I understand him right, he, he argues that uh, it, it can go in two directions. In one sense, it's, it's like our soul talking to God and saying, God, this, the, the way my body is crying out for food right now, that's what my soul is saying to you. God, you have to do something here. We need you. And it's, it's this way of calling to God like that. And it's not earning God's favor or anything like that, but it's just simply saying, God, we need you like that. The way my body needs food, I need you, and I long for you to do something. Uh, or if you look at it the other way, it's it's a, it's a way of speaking to your soul because if you've ever had fasted, you'll find out very quickly, you get a couple hours in, and uh, you're way more dependent on food for your satisfaction than you think. So all of a sudden you're super impatient, you're snapping off at people. and you, all you can think about is six o'clock when I can eat again, that you can't you can't think of anything else, and you're you're tired, you're slow. And it's it's a way then of telling your soul, say soul, you are so much more dependent upon God than you ever have a, a clue about. Let your body crying out be a declaration to you. You need God way more than this. And so it's a way of declaring to your soul how badly we long for God and God's work. And we need God's work. But either way, uh, the, the biblical uh, view of fasting seems to be that it's meant to be with the attention behind it as a longing for God's restorative presence. We need God's restorative presence presence. And so that's fasting. So when we enter into the scene, uh, we have John's disciples fasting, which throughout the New Testament, John's disciples are typically painted in a very good light. So it's possible that John is even front-loading John's disciples as a way of saying, "Don't, don't just so quickly just assume this is bad. Because right? the Pharisees' disciples are fasting. And the Pharisees aren't even the ones that are asking the question either. If you look at the text again, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came. And they now asked Jesus, hey, the religious devout are fasting. Why aren't your disciples fasting? Now, if we just give them as, as fair reading as possible, it's very possible that they're asking just all in good faith. Just like, hey. If, if you are here to kind of stir things up religiously and, and guide people towards God, th- through the history of our culture, we have always fasted and yearned for God. It would be very fitting for you to teach your disciples to also yearn for God. But you're, you're not. You're actually feasting. Now, the religious devout, like John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples, they're, they're longing for God. Why aren't you longing for God? See, it's very possible that they're, the, the fasting, if it's actually what's going on is, is right, it's this longing for God, and that's it's a right thing to do. And so they're asking, give us, give us some clarity here. What's going on? Why aren't you doing that? And it doesn't have to be a bad question. And now Jesus is going to answer that very question with three illustrations. They're all going to hint at the same thing here. And so uh, he's three of them, just kind of give, really nailed down the point. The first one, uh, 19 and 20, is about the bridegroom. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. So this is a very common, simple illustration, right? It's, There's there's a wedding going on. Uh, Oftentimes, you know, you probably experience this. You might, if you're going to a celebration, you might even hold off on eating. You know, I I actually was, uh, I I had uh, the 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 best tamales in in the city that I know of. Uh, Had them with uh, Nick and Olivia yesterday. And uh, if you want to try the best tamales, you let me know. We'll we'll arrange a time and we'll we'll make this happen. But we were having them yesterday. I had breakfast. Uh, I didn't eat anything until it was tamale time which is going to be about one thirty. And I was hungry. But I'm intentionally doing that because I want to save the room. I want to save as much room as possible because I want to savor that. So, you know, sometimes it's a celebration. It's this idea of anticipation. We wait. We don't stuff ourselves before the party because we're going to feast at the party. And so Jesus is saying, hey, look, now if, if the people have gathered, the guests are there. They're waiting for the bridegroom to be here or the groom. And the groom shows up and all the food comes out and everybody's about to dig in and it would make no sense whatsoever to not eat, right? Because the, the bridegroom is there. It's not fitting to fast at a wedding. There's a wedding t- today. Uh, I'm guessing nobody's going to be fasting at the wedding for anybody that is going there, right? A, a, a wedding is not a place for fasting. So uh, I would just label that it's not fitting to fast at a wedding. Um, the way I was thinking about this, I, you know, some of you know I don't have a whole lot of memory uh, memories as a child from my childhood, uh, but for some reason this one popped in my head uh, the other day, and uh, it was from I went to Wrestlefest, WWF Wrestlefest in 1988. So I was 10 years old, and it was at County Stadium. Now, I mean, they had a full a full lineup, and if you know the WWF, some of you will remember some of these names, but. Uh, They'll be lost on some of you. So Macho Man Randy Savage was there. Oh, yeah, he was there. (laughs) Uh, Ultimate Warrior was there going up against Bobby the Brain Heenan, which was sweet. Uh, The Demolition was there. Uh, The British Bulldogs were there. A Million Dollar Man Ted DiBiase was there. Jake the Snake Roberts. I mean, it was a packed lineup. Even a cage match between Andre the Giant, 500 pounds plus against Hollywood Hogan. Well, he wasn't Hollywood Hogan at the time. It was Hulk Hogan. I mean, this was amazing. Now, that was back when I was watching wrestling as a kid. And you can just imagine me as a kid having the figures kind of like waiting for weeks on uh, as it leads up and I'm doing all the matches in my mind and I'm kind of playing with my action figures as, as playing out with what, what, what it's gonna look like. And all of a sudden we finally get there, the, the, the day is there, we're at, the, we're at WrestleFest and I got my figures with me and they're all coming out and I'm sitting in the, in the seats going like this. And, and my, whoever I'm with is saying, look, like watch, watch the match. No, 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 the match is going around right here. It would make no sense. All the play for the last two weeks leading up to WrestleFest was all anticipation for the real deal. And it would make no sense to actually now play with my action figures when the real deal is right before me. This is what Jesus is getting at. Look, all that fasting was anticipation of God's restorative presence. God's restorative presence is here. It's not fitting to fast when I'm here. All of that was supposed to be preparatory for me. And now I'm here. So it makes no sense to be fasting. Or as text group, someone said it, uh, it's ridiculous. Fasting when Jesus is in your presence would be ridiculous. Because God's restorative presence is there. The other thing to note is that bridegroom, uh, throughout the Old Testament, bridegroom is never linked with Messiah, uh, with the coming of the Messiah. Bridegroom is always linked with Yahweh. Uh, So if you think of Hosea, Isaiah, Jeremiah, very common in the prophets, that God is the bridegroom, Israel is the bride. And so uh, I think he is using that uh, imagery here also for that. Jesus is making a very uh, major, major claim here. He's not just simply saying, well, they shouldn't fast when I'm here. He's saying, look, fasting, the purpose of fasting was to long for God's restorative presence, waiting for resolution, and God is here with you. I am here. So that's the first illustration. Uh, second and third illustration, uh, I think, really just are trying to carry on the thought of it not being fitting. So you have the first one in verse 21. Look, no one sews a piece a piece of new or untrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. So now if you know anything about clothing, uh, this will be very clear to you if you don't. Uh, you need a little bit of work on this, but basically it goes like this. Because uh, now you know we buy most of our clothes pre-shrunk and stuff. But in the old days, you had to buy a, cl- a piece of gar- a garment and it would wash and it would shrink up. So basically if you take a shirt or something, a quilt or whatever it is, and it's, it's been washed, it's, it has shrunk. If it gets a hole in it, you gotta, you gotta put a patch around the hole. And if it's new, if it's new patch, new cloth, when you wash it, that's going to shrink up again or for the first time. And the rest of the garment is going to get pulled in. And what you're actually going to do, it's going to actually destroy it. It's going to, you're going to have a worse tear in the garment now. So what you thought was actually going to fix the garment actually made it worse. And now you've got a, a garment you can't ever use. And so Jesus—the the, the point of the illustration is very simple. It is not fitting. You can't take these and put them together. It's not fitting. In the same way it's not fitting... For uh, the, the guest to be fasting when the bridegroom is here and it's t- a time for feasting and celebrating and rejoicing, in the same way, it's not fitting to take an old cl- a new cloth and put it on an old cloth because it won't work. Next illustration works exactly the same way. Uh, verse 22, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins so for this one this this one easily gets lost on a lot of us uh, so wine the way they would do the wine is they would take a, most likely a hide and the the neck becomes the neck of the bottle and they kind of sew up the body and this is like the wine skin so you have a hide you put you pour the fresh wine in and it's gotten over time it has to ferment right and so as the ferments the gases are released and it stretches the wine skin so now you, you use the wine uh, and once that's empty, you still have your wineskin. skin. if you put new wine in there again, and that, that wine starts fermenting, the gases start releasing, and it stretches the wineskin. But the wineskin can't go any farther. It's brittle and old, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to burst. And so if you do that, if you put a new wine into old wineskins, all you're left with is a mess because the wineskins have broken, the wine's on the floor, and now you've got nothing. Right? And Jesus says, look, no, nobody does that. It's just not fitting. Why would you do that? You don't do that. In the same way that guests would never fast at a wedding when the bridegroom's there, it's a time for feasting, you wouldn't use a new patch on an old uh, garment because that wouldn't, that wouldn't be fitting either. In the same way, you wouldn't put new wine into old wineskins. That wouldn't be fitting. This just doesn't work. It does not make sense. When God's restorative presence is here in your midst, it's a time for celebration. It's a time to rejoice. It's a time to sing of the victory. It is not a time to be waiting for resolution. It's not a time for fasting. It's not a time for longing or sorrow or mourning. It's a time to feast. And that's why my disciples feast. And so the, the application there for the, for the people in the story then would, would be something like, come on, y'all, end the fast. I'm here. The purpose of your fasting is to point to me, and I'm here End the fast and join in the feast. Now, I I find this to be an interesting passage because what we experience, the the application for those in in the story uh, seems to actually be different than the audience. Uh, Because the audience, uh, remember, is the first audience is several decades after this actual scene. So the, the audience receiving the letter from Mark uh, and all those after them uh, are people who have lived uh, during the time after the re- death burial and resurrection of Jesus. If you saw uh, in verse 20, uh, verse 20 there, he says, "The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast in that day. In other words, fasting will be reactivated. It will be or, uh, reinstated because there, there will be longing again. Because the bridegroom's taken away. We're now longing for God's restorative presence again. And so the first audience actually, if you think of the graph, right, the the x-axis being longing, y-axis being joy and rejoicing, the people in the story are supposed to be all the way up at the top, just joy, just celebration. But the audience is supposed to be right out in the middle, both full of longing and full of joy, full of victory. Because The audience are people who have actually we live in a time after the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus when Jesus did come and win victory, right? Jesus defeated sin and death and so we are to sing a victory. Death is no more. Where is your sting? And at the same time this is an incredible time of longing because there still is death and diagnoses and disease and disaster all over the place. And so it's an incredibly uh, time of longing. Or as the Apostle Paul says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Right? So there's this mixed bag that, that we are to be. God's people should, if, you might answer it this way for us God's people should demonstrate uh, both celebration and longing because of where we are in terms of God's restorative presence. God has come, He is restored, and yet God is coming again. Things are not. Uh, as they will be, right? The best is still yet to come. So I thought what we could do is kind of like give, uh, think through this a little bit. Uh, the the mixture of this, I think the Apostle Paul says it really well uh, in First Corinthians chapter seven. Uh, there, there he's talking about whether or not people should get married or should stay single and such like that. But I love how he ends the discussion. He says, "He says this is what I mean, brothers." The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, those who have wives should live as though they had none. Those who are mourning should live as if they are not mourning. Those who rejoice should live as those who are not rejoicing. Those who buy should live as if they have no goods. Those who deal with the world should live as though they have no dealings with it. Because the present form of this world is passing away. I love how he does that. He he talks about mourning and rejoicing, saying, are you mourning? You should live as if you're not mourning. Are you rejoicing? You should live as if you're not rejoicing. He He kind of puts the needle right in the middle. He's not saying mourning is wrong. He's not saying rejoicing is wrong. It's just not the end of the story. Right, this is a time to rejoice. There's a ton to rejoice in. But there's also a lot to mourn in. And so I love the way he puts it. He puts it similar in uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 when he, sa- when he says, uh, what does he say? we, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep or those who have died, so that you may not mourn or grieve as others do who have no hope. He doesn't say to not grieve. Christians should grieve, but we don't grieve the same way the world grieves. The world grieves because everything good was lost. We do grieve death. It brings a lot of sorrow, but the best is yet to come. We have hope. So the Christian is to, we're to be this mixed bag. There's joy and hope, or joy and longing. There's feasting and fasting. There's celebration and sorrow. There's singing of victory. And there's waiting and longing for resolution. Now, the thing is, if you think about that graph, all of us are on there, but we probably lean in one direction or the other, yeah? I'm guessing there's some here who often are in the sorrow and the mourning and the longing aspect. And some of you lean very heavy towards the joy and celebration Christ has come. He's set us free. And you cannot help but sing. Now, the thing is, I, I think that's why we need community. So let, let, let us just think through a couple uh, different of us, uh, different people. I, I think about the people that are older in the faith, not necessarily age-wise, but maybe age-wise, perhaps old-wise, but have been in the faith for a good number of years. And I do think about the older people, a lot of the older people that I know that uh, that have walked with Jesus faithfully uh, for decades, they get this longing to go home that I find refreshing. I, rem- I remember uh, Joel Knapp being in a, he was a couple dec- I think about two decades older than myself, being in our small group several years ago. And I remember uh, maybe five, six years ago, just talking about how, you know, my kids were a little bit younger, uh, even in that age, and just kind of like, Feeling a lot of responsibility and just having this fear of death, not not necessarily. I mean, part of it is like I, I I do believe the gospel is true. But what about my what about my kids, my family, if I die? Like that that's you know I I don't I don't know how I don't know how to grapple with that. And I just remember Joel Knapp just talking about, yeah I you know I used to think like that too. But I, you know I don't I don't want to go back. I don't want to go back. Having young kids was great. I don't want to go back to that, though. I don't, I don't miss that in that sense. I want to go forward. I want to go home. I, I can't wait till the battle's over. You know, I, I, can, I can taste it. I can smell it. I can see it. I want to go home and be with Jesus. I want all the pain to be gone once again. I, want, I don't want to hear any more stories of, of death of loved ones. I want to see him face to face. And that was helpful for me. I just need, I need to hear that. If you're here today... And you are one that just leans towards longing, waiting, mourning. We need to hear that. Let us hear that. Bring that out in small group. Now, I say that meaning faith-filled longing, right? I'm not talking about grumbling, right? That's different. But longing to go home. This, as, as Piper puts it, a homesickness. I want to be with God. I want, I want to see the end of all the sorrow I want the tears to be wiped away from my eyes and the eyes of everyone. I want to be in the presence of Christ. We need that. I think of uh, others, maybe, it's, maybe we could call them kind of uh, midlife uh, in the faith. Uh, you know, you've, you've, you've walked with Jesus, you know, maybe a couple dec- decades now, uh, long enough to, to have seen God is faithful. He really is. I can trust him. And yet you still know you probably have another 20, 30 years here uh, on this earth, uh, you know, barring nothing uh, strange happening or whatever. Uh, That's that's what you look forward to. And it just stirs up this, like, this, what we would call it, like, a lament, a complaint. And it's like, okay, God, how long are you going to wait? How long are the wicked going to just continue to just live it up? How how long are you going to turn your face from us? Why aren't you interceding in this situation? Don't you see what's happening? Where are you? Why do you leave us like this? Now, there's some of you that are really bent that way, and that's that's good. You can can be a common-day, modern-day psalmist, right, where there's there's this crying out, Jesus from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And again, that that can be very faith-filled, if you think of, of, of parents, parents can handle the questions that their kids ask, right? Mom and dad, I, I don't understand this. I don't, I don't like this. And in fact, many times that can be honoring. Because instead of the, instead of the kids going off and, and talking bad about the parents with their friends, they actually bring their complaints to the parent. That can be very honoring. So crying out with lament, asking God, why? Why? Why, God? Why? If that's you, we need to hear that. Bring that into group. Bring that into coffee shops. Ask. Because that can be good for our hearts. And that will actually be very helpful for those who are always geared towards joy and celebration. It will temper us from not really feeling the longing. And there's others here. Uh, oftentimes, this is a characteristic of people young in the faith, which is wonderful. But others that just maybe have the gift of faith. That you just, you really lean towards joy, victory. It's just front and center. I have been forgiven of my sins. I've been cleansed. My greatest problem is solved. And out comes a song. And you're just geared towards joy and celebration and victory. And sometimes you can't understand all these like people that always want to long for something else. Like, this is amazing. That's good. We need to hear that. And I think the community of God's people are supposed to help us get more towards the middle, right? As we're kind of interacting, as we're sharing these things. It's healthy. It's good for us. And so let us be a community where we freely both share the celebration and the sorrow and help, uh, help us get more towards this good mixture. And, you know, the Lord's Supper is a way of giving us this constant, regular, weekly-like reminder foretaste. Uh, I think of, uh, you know, when you're going to a restaurant and you've, you've ordered the meal. And it's one thing to be at this restaurant and you're excited about it. You've seen pictures of, of it. Let's say you've never eat, eaten there before. You see a picture of it or you read the description. You're like, oh, man, that sounds amazing. You order it. And there's this anticipation for the meal, right? That's one thing. That's fun and glorious. But it's something else to first taste a little sample of it. There's this restaurant that I, I've gone to with Isaiah a couple times. Uh, downtown and there's this uh, sweet uh, elderly lady that uh, behind you know it's, it's kind of like you go up to the counter and you order and she'll always hand out these samples of the chicken that you can try and there's all these different flavors and uh, it's you know first she gives you one and you're like oh that's pretty good and then and then I always get the sweet and sour one and she, she hands it to me it's like oh yeah that's what I want so now I I, I have tasted that now I order it and now the wait begins. Because now I know what it's like. I, I've tasted it. It's real. I cannot wait to have the full thing sitting before me. And there's this longing. And the Lord's Supper can have that impact. To remind us once again, yes, Christ has come. He's died. He's raised from the dead. He's reigning on high. The victory is ours, believer. We have been washed clean by the blood of Christ. There is no more judgment for you. Your, your, your worst problem has been solved and God has given you the Holy Spirit to be with you. You have nothing to fear and nobody can thwart God's plan for you and all things will work for, together for your good on this world, in this world and that is glorious. And yet, things are not as they will be one day. We still long, as, as Paul says about the Lord's supper, as long as we eat the bread and drink the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's supposed to remind us that he's coming. It's a foretaste. It's, it's, yes, Lord, we have the victory, but we want to taste the full thing. We want the full meal when sin is eradicated and death is no more. And so with that, let us partake of the Lord's uh, Supper. If you're here this morning and you were a follower of Christ and seeking to walk in uh, repentant faith, uh, that's not about perfection but direction, seeking to live under his care and what Jesus says is what you shall do, uh, then the Lord's table is open uh, for you. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Christ, then we ask you not to partake of the Lord's table. Or if you're here and you proclaim to follow Jesus but don't actually uh, walk in it, then we ask that you not partake. Uh, but if you're a follower of Christ, uh, then we, ask, uh, we invite you to join in. Come the inner part of the aisle, grab the elements and return to your seats, and we will partake together. You who are blood bought uh, with the bread, we are reminded that your judgment has been poured out. You were fully set free, your greatest problem has been solved. You have a God who has now promised to be with you to the end of your days. You have nothing to fear on this earth. What can man do to you? For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. And yet it is great news that this is not the best there is. The best is yet to come, believer. The Lord Jesus said he goes to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, he would not have told you so. One day you'll see him face to face. He will wipe away all your tears and sorrow. Death will be no more. Pain will be no more. Emotional distraughtness will be no more. Everlasting joy in his presence. That's your future, believer, because the Lord Jesus, in the same way, took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me.